0: <clears throat> Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 24. You will have to have the text in front of you so you can follow along. We'll work through uh, many of the verses of this incredible chapter. Indeed, one of the most incredible in all Scripture. What it records. I mean, the Bible. I mean, how do you rank the pages of the Bible? But 884, which is the page it is on your pew Bible, and 885 have to be two of the best pages. Uh, When you see this story uh, as a Bible student, uh, to imagine being uh, in the place of these two disciples, especially who are on the road to Emmaus with Jesus, opening up the Bible for them, explaining to them how he appears from Moses through the prophets. An amazing, magnificent, astonishing story for sure. But we'll begin at the beginning of chapter 24. I'll read the first, uh, the opening verses to verse 16 as our scripture reading. I'll pause to make a little bit of an explanation there uh, in this first part of the reading. Uh, but Then we'll pray and then go back into the passage together. It's an amazing text for sure, especially on this Resurrection Sunday. It's a paradigm for all Sundays, Easter Sunday, celebrating the risen Savior. Here as I read God's holy inspired word as it happened. Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. An idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home, marveling at what had happened. Now, at this point, they're all gathered in uh, a house, no doubt, multiple, pe- probably thirty people in the house at this point. And two of the disciples, two of the disciples are said to have left. Probably to go sleep in a place in Emmaus, which would have been less than a two-hour brisk walk from them. And so they left, these two left, and the text picks up with these two leaving, after the rest of the apostles did not believe what the women had said. Now, they trusted these women, they loved these women, there's no reason for these women to lie, but the story just seemed too big for them to imagine, especially three days having passed since Christ had been crucified. Now we pick up at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Before we go farther... Notice that twice in the passage so far, we see the blindness of the disciples. First, they do not believe the women's report. Now, as these two disciples start the long walk, Jesus joins them. It says in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing it. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, indeed the resurrection is a most amazing thing. We gather on your day, which now is Sunday, not Saturday, precisely because our Lord Jesus rose again on Sunday. We gather as believers. We gather as your people. We gather as worshipers. But Lord, we see in this account that it's not our ability to discern the truth on our own that makes us believers in Christ. Lord, we could see it's not even evidence for the resurrection that compelled us to trust in Christ. It wasn't because we compared Christianity with Islam or Judaism or some other world religion and decided Christianity made the most sense. It was the most reasonable, although it is. And though we are rational people, people here in the text are eyewitnesses, people that had knowledge of centuries-old prophecies, yet they failed to see, they failed to believe. They could not recognize the risen Christ. How humbling it is to see that Our inability to believe as people is real. But Lord, we see that you have been doing the same thing for millennia. You have been giving belief. The text says that you opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Lord, open our minds as we look at your word in this incredible story from Luke 24. Indeed, Lord, we confess that you are sovereign over our spiritual sight, and we give you all our praise for this. In Christ's name, amen. If you are like me, you have many people that you love who do not know Christ. They do not believe in Jesus. They are people uh, that we have had relationship with for a long time, maybe shared Christ with, yet they don't believe, and it frustrates. How could they not believe in the risen Savior? There are people all around us, for that matter, who do not acknowledge the miracle of Christ and his resurrection. Now, there's plenty of historic testimony about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, there's plenty of testimony about his life, about his death, and his resurrection. Yes, so many seem to discount or ignore or deny it. People believe in Bigfoot, they believe in UFOs, in haunted houses but not an historical account testified by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Well, when we look at Luke 24, I believe that it starts to open our eyes to something. It's my hope as we study Luke 24 that for those of you who believe, that you'll see why you believe and you'll praise him. If you don't believe, I'm praying that God will grant you sight because that is what must happen. It won't be dependent on me for you to believe. It will depend on what it has always depended on, the Lord God granting sight to blind people. The story is about God's sovereignty over spiritual sight. In fact, to say it this way, God must grant us spiritual sight so that we can embrace the importance of Christ and his resurrection. If you embrace the resurrection as true, and you know that this authenticates all of what Jesus said about himself, for the forgiveness of our sins. That's a gift that God has given you to see. And it may be frustrating. Why can't everybody see this? Recognize God has to give spiritual sight. We don't have this on our own. Now, let's jump back into the passage and see how this unfolds in this first resurrection meeting with Christ. And really, we have in this passage the first Easter sermon given by Jesus himself. Two of the disciples, one named Clopas, And the other is not named. Now, some people think this might be the Clopas mentioned in John 19. They were at the foot of the cross when Jesus was being crucified, and it was Clopas and his wife Mary. So maybe this is Clopas and Mary. Now you're thinking there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. There are. There's six or seven. Now the reason, this is a very popular name for Jewish women because it's based on Miriam, uh, the sister of Moses. So there are several Marys who are close to Christ and the disciples but maybe this is Clopas and his wife, and they're going back to Emmaus to sleep for the night. It could be Clopas is another name for one of the disciples, one of the known disciples or the apostles. Uh, Just a different name. You know, Peter had Simon and Cephas. It just could be another name. And then the unnamed one might be Luke. It's not uncommon for gospel writers to not name themselves. John does this when he says the disciple Jesus loved, and John recording it doesn't say it's him. We don't know for sure all sorts of discussion about this. But there are two disciples who are close to the inner circle. They were holed up together in this house together uh, after the complex of the crucifixion and the reported resurrection had happened. They were nervous about uh, the authorities, about what this meant, and two went off basically to sleep for the night, and they had about a two-hour walk. Pick up at verse 13 with me. That very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. I mean, you could imagine. You've been on a road trip before that normally would take a long time, but you had something happen. You start talking with your spouse or with your kids about it, and time flies. You could imagine all they had to talk about. Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is an important phrase. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And this is the first thing I want you to see from this story. We, all of us, are spiritually blind apart from God's gracious gift of sight. Now, I don't mean to say that this story itself is a paradigm for all stories, but it does bolster a point that's throughout Scripture that we cannot discern spiritual things unless the Spirit of God discerns them for us. Um, Natural man can't discern spiritual things. We're blind spiritually. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are, how insightful you are, how philosophically astute you are. um, There's a spiritual blindness that everybody has, and God must give sight or we can't see. In this case, it's very vivid. Jesus himself, the risen Lord, takes up the walk with him, and they don't recognize it's him. Now, partially, it's true, he didn't look exactly like he did. Um, his resurrection body is similar but not identical, too. Its features or its properties are mysteriously different. We don't know. It's a prototype for our resurrection body. We don't know exactly all the things it can do. It's different. It's like a pre-fall, before the fall happened, plus improved version even, 2.0. Verse 16, though, if you look carefully, it gives us the instruction we need. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Clearly, when taken in the larger context of this episode, it seems that God's intention was to hold back Jesus' identity for the purpose of teaching with a profound and lasting impact. It's true. Jesus could have just said, hey, it's me. I'm risen again. And then... They would have been taken up with that fact for sure. But there's something he's teaching them, and it's very important that we see what he's teaching because it's the lasting thing that Jesus will leave when he ascends. There is something so important that the risen Christ wants to uh, inculcate. It's something for all of us to see, and I believe it's how we keep the fire of what the resurrection means burning in our lives. It's an amazing thing that Jesus himself takes up stride with them. Now imagine this. Um, there wasn't a highway of people walking up to Emmaus, but there would have been people walking. It wouldn't have been just a couple uh, loners. And so these two disciples are enamored with each other's discussion, and then Jesus takes up walking with them. That wouldn't be unusual. It's safer to travel in numbers. People would respect that and appreciate that. And they, yeah, you could come with us. And they go. And they just keep their conversation up. Amazingly, They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened in his earsight. Just imagine this as the Lord Jesus himself is listening to what they're saying. All that had happened, I mean, what an understatement. No doubt they were talking about Jesus raising Lazarus just a couple weeks before all of this happened. No doubt they were talking about the entrance into Jerusalem just over a week before. The puzzling fanfare on that day and how it all seemed to just digress and, and unravel before their eyes. No doubt they were talking about the Last Supper they had with Jesus. It had to be a vivid memory. Who could forget that? Even if they were in the inner circle of disciples, that would have been all the talk for those days after Jesus was arrested. The Last Supper. Do you remember what he said to us? That like going over in their minds, what instruction did he give? <clears throat> what was he saying? What was the symbolism? What did it all mean? No doubt they were talking about Jesus in the garden. Judas, one of their own, betraying him. Jesus getting arrested. How about Peter taking off a sword and cutting off the ear of one of the guards? I mean, good thing Peter was a bad shot with the sword, right? Hits the guy side of his... And what does Jesus do? Under arrest, he heals the man. Puts his ear back on. No doubt they were talking about all these things. The mockery of trials before the Jews and the Romans. Jesus before the Roman governor. What an episode in and of itself. The awful, torturous scourging that left Jesus almost dead, then the crucifixion, the darkened sky in the middle of the day, the heavily guarded tomb of Jesus, the most watched tomb in all the Palestine. I mean, what could they have been talking about so much? And Jesus is listening as they talk. Pick up in verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they they stopped. The text says so. They stood still and looking sad. So they did not believe Jesus was being raised again. That's clear. They didn't believe. They thought something went wrong with the story. Something was not right about all that happened, and they were sad. And they stopped and listened incredulously to this guy. Are you the only one that says, literally, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus says in verse 19, with wonderful divine wisdom that prods them further, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want you to pay close attention, brothers and sisters, at the message that Clopas gives about the whole of his understanding of Jesus. Over, so we'll assume he had known Jesus in Jesus' public ministry. If he was one of the disciples or close to that group, for three years had been listening to these various uh, teachings of Christ. And this is how he summarizes what he had seen for three years. It shows a bit of the blindness we can have, even if we are right in the face of revelation. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. It's over. It's over. No, It's, it's done. This, this thing we had built up for three years, we thought he was this prophet. Well, he was this prophet. We heard what he said, what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to redeem it, and at the end of the day, he did. It's been three days, in fact. You know, what Clopas says is basically true, but it's not the gospel. It's a story from two sad people. They tell it as if something isn't right. Despite having walked with Jesus for three intense years of discipleship, they reveal a misunderstanding about God's will. They get the facts. Yes, Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. It's true, the chief priests and the rulers turned him over to the Romans to have him crucified. But according to them, he was supposed to bring them some kind of political or sociological deliverance. And he didn't. What a low view of deliverance they have. What a low view of the kind of deliverance they actually needed. They should be way sadder than they are. Far sadder than they are, but they're sad. And here's what shows how sad they are. Verse 22. They continue, Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive? Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You know they're confused by what has happened. They don't know how to quantify it. They don't know how to characterize it. They just know this is what's happened. I mean we're we're, we're kind of losing it here. Listen to what's happening here. They acknowledge what the women said, but only that it confuses them, not that it could be true. How do we know they know it's not true? They don't think it's true. Because they're sadly walking to Emmaus rather than happily looking around Jerusalem for the risen Christ. Big difference. Verse 25 Jesus has heard enough of their demeanor and their understanding. And he said to them, Oh foolish ones. And I know that sounds harsh, but it, there's various levels of how one might be called a fool. And this is more like, Oh, so clueless and slow of heart so slow to see, so spiritually unaware, so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You disciples, presumably Jewish, you should know what the prophets said. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And this is the the most amazing of all verses in this whole section as a Bible student and a Bible teacher. What I would... Of all the episodes that I could walk into in biblical history, I don't know what you would pick. There's so many good ones. So many to see. This may seem boring, and you might expect this, but I would step in right here. Because Christ, for all due respect to my seminary professors and mentors that I've had, who would be better than Christ right here? Jesus himself, verse 27. In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know what your vocation is, what your hobby is, what gets you excited, but this gets me excited. I mean, just to imagine what could it have been that he had said from Moses and the prophets to show the revelation of himself to the disciples. And they still don't even know it's Jesus, remember. How ironic it is, though, at this point. Think about what was said earlier. Do you remember earlier? They said to him, are you the only one who doesn't know what just happened? And the irony here is, he's the only one who knows what happened. The Bible is spiritually discerned, and that's the second thing I want you to see. The Bible is spiritually discerned, so we need God's illumination to understand. We need for Jesus to interpret for us his word. Now, in this case, they have Jesus bodily there. But Jesus' plan was, after ascension, to send his spirit so that we would have his illumination. So people, the people of God would have his word and have his spirit attending his word so we would understand it. Now it would not be, it's not as clear to us, although it's very clear, as it would have been for the person of Christ himself, walking on the road. I don't know what he covered in less than two hours. Must have been an amazing class, to say the least. But he unpacks for them. He illuminates his words so that they see Christ in the Bible as they should have seen him. They wouldn't have been sad had they understood. Just imagine, what is it in your Bible knowledge, what do you think Jesus took from Moses and the prophets to explain himself. It could have been Genesis 3, right? Right from the beginning. The promise of the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Maybe that's what we have. I mean, Jesus walking with holes in his feet. The feet that crushed the head of the serpent. It bruised him, but it crushed the serpent. Genesis 6, how God preserved mankind so the seed of the Messiah would stay. Genesis 12, when he promises to Abraham that he would make him a great nation, and then he takes Abraham and Abraham's only son and tells him to kill his only son. It's a picture of what would happen not even a couple miles from the same place. Picture of Jesus in Genesis 12 already. In the last chapters of Genesis, an episode that man decided would be evil, God preserves through Joseph the people of Israel, for the saving of a great many lives, and it wasn't just from famine. It had to do with what would come through Messiah. Where would he have begun in Moses to tell about himself? What about all the ways that Moses pictured Christ in the book of Exodus with the lamb that was to be slain, how it pictured Jesus? How the blood of the lamb had to be figuratively put over the households for them to be saved? How about the tabernacle, the temple, a picture of God with us, Emmanuel? Jesus himself with us. How about Numbers in the serpent in the wilderness that Moses put on a pole and looked up, put up, and the people were bit by the serpents. If they looked, they lived. As the Son of Man also was lifted up, and as people look on him, they live. What could Jesus have been telling him from Moses? Where could he stop? It had to be an amazing, an amazing class. Didn't stop with Moses. Then the prophets, one by one, explaining the messianic hope, the messianic reality, the messianic truth that would come. I have to believe at some point Jesus there with them would have gone to Isaiah and would have gone and said that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, Christ, was a chastisement that brought us peace. Oh, that's what Isaiah is talking about, the disciples had to have thought. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus teaches from the prophets. He teaches from Moses how it is that all of the Old Testament is about him. That's the purpose. That's the point. That's The, the key to the Hebrew scriptures is it's all about Jesus. Wow, they had to have thought. How Isaiah 53, it's about Our Jesus died such an awful death, but why? To which Jesus would have responded, I'm sure, in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Wait a minute. The suffering Messiah would not stay dead. And that can be shown from Moses and the prophets. This has to sound something for the disciples. I wonder if Jesus told them, just as Jonah, the prophet, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Can you imagine if you're a disciple? I mean, most of our children know these stories. And as the children start to hear how Christ fulfills it, you see them, the lights go off in a a young child, and they know it and they get it. These are adults who walk with Christ, and now the light's turning on as this stranger unpacks the whole of biblical revelation. Uh, Philip Ryken has a great commentary on this passage, and he says this, Jesus is not just here or there in this prediction or that prophecy. He is everywhere in the Old Testament. He is the ark of the covenant and the blood of the mercy seat. He is the light on the golden lamp stand and the bread of life. He is the prophet who preaches like Moses, the priest who prays like Aaron, and the king after David's heart. Verse 27, great passage. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Brothers and sisters, we need God's illumination to understand. Uh, When Jesus was with the disciples, he promised them that he would send the Spirit, and that's who we have to help us understand the Word. When we pray for God's illumination, we are asking for God to fulfill his promise. Personally, to send his spirit so that we might discern his holy word. But let's continue. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Now that's just their understanding. It looked like he wasn't going to stay with them. That's all it means. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. They wanted to know more. They had to have, right? I mean, two hours isn't enough. There's so much more that could be said, so many other passages to be unpacked. Stay with us. So he did. Verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it. Now, understand, he's a guest, he's not the host. He comes into the house, and as they're ready to eat, he takes the bread. Now, why do you think he does that? Why does Jesus do this? Well, we know in the verse after, he's meaning to reveal himself. But why does he do it in this way, do you suppose? He's been laying out the word for them the whole trip. The word, the word, the word. Now he takes the bread. What would they remember when he lifts up the bread? Now, I'm not suggesting this is communion. But what I am suggesting is it was on purpose to remind them of communion and everything that goes into what that message says. He took bread, it says here, and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. I want you to see something here. How did they recognize him? By two things. First, he opened the word to them. Second, he broke the bread with them. There's something else I want you to see from this passage. God reveals Christ to us, primarily in two ways, in the church. And for believers, because we're all part of the church. No believer is independent of the church. They're part of God's body. God reveals Christ to us through his word primarily, but he also does through through the sacrament. The sacrament has a purpose to bolster the word. It's in that order. He gives the word. He gave it for two hours on the road to Emmaus, and then he breaks bread, and it all comes physically. It comes to their mind what is spiritually true. It's a picture, it bolsters, it cements their belief in all they have heard. That's what the sacrament does. It doesn't save anybody. It just forsave people, bolsters their faith in Christ. That's the gift it is to us. How do we know who Christ is? How do we know who the, what the sacrament is? Through the Word. So we have a regular diet of the Word, and every so often we participate in the Lord's Supper, and we realize afresh how we are bought with the price of Christ's blood, and we are his, and we are free, and we will live forever as a result. And we have to hear this because we forget it. We start out spiritually blind, God gives us sight. We have trouble understanding the word unless the spirit comes. I mean, it's so humbling, but it's all God's glory. And then he gives us his word perpetually so we have it, and then he gives us the sacrament so that we remember. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. You know, the ministry of the church is a ministry of the word and the sacrament. It's that simple. When we get off of that is when we get into trouble. We think God needs our help to, to get more people to come in or to have more impact than what the word and the sacrament have. That's where we get off the tracks. Realize Jesus could have, on the road, instead of opened the word to them and done it the way he did, he could have just said, I'm here, it's me, and revealed himself what would have happened? They would have been enamored with his presence and that's how far it would have gone. But what he wanted to teach them is you, will always, you won't always have me bodily, I'll ascend, but you'll always have my word, you'll have my spirit illuminating it, and you'll have my sacrament to remember me by until I come again. If you want the fire of Easter to keep going on, then keep coming to the word. Keep coming to the sacrament. Keep coming to the word. That's how, you can't skip that and think you're going to know the risen Christ or that you're gonna stay, you're going to stay spiritually vibrant. You won't. These are disciples walking with the risen Christ, and they need help. We need it too. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight, uh, just like Jesus does in his post-resurrection appearances, 11 of them in total, and they're all very mysterious. He's gone as fast as he was there. Now, this is what I love. This is what the resurrection does. When they grasp the resurrection, they're no longer sad, mopey, walking to Emmaus to go to sleep. Now they're as awake as they could be, and what do they want to do? Walk seven miles back to tell everybody what they just saw. That's what the resurrection does. They knew it. Verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? We knew it, when he was telling us. What he was telling us, was from, it was from heaven. It wasn't just some person's explanation. And then he's gone. Well, verse 33. They rose at the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. And before they could say anything, the people said to them, as they walked into the room full of people, probably 20 or 30 people, as they walked in, they said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they respond immediately. Then they told us, they, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So despite having logged 14 miles of hiking, seven in the dark, They bound into the house of the disciples and the others where they were meeting to find them awake too. Are you surprised? In verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Calm. You could calm. You could be calm. I am alive. That's what he's saying. Wait. Whoa, hold on. Now, The reaction is tough, but let's give them some slack. This has been a stressful day. But they were startled, it says in verse 37, and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Uh, See how blind we could be or how spiritually dull we can be? Despite talking about uh, some of their members seeing Jesus, when he actually appears, they were doubtful. Now remember this overarching point that we began with. God must grant us spiritual sight so we can embrace the importance of Christ and his resurrection. Verse 38. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I mean, there could be no mistake, he says. Look at Come, feel me. There could be no doubt, right? Verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, let me say that phrase again because it's so human. It's so true of exactly how they felt. And I think you could gather what they felt by this phrase. Still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Can you feel what they're saying there? They still disbelieve. This can't be true. This can't be. This isn't right. This doesn't compute. This isn't it. But he's here. He's with us. This is for sure. This is amazing. He said to them, Have you anything here to eat? That's just a guy thing, by the way. (laughs) He wants to prove to them he is not a ghost. He'll show them. He could tell they're they're in this, this state of disbelieving joy and marveling. And so he says, Give me some fish. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. By this, Luke is describing Jesus' revealing of himself to them, and it also reveals something else to us that I want us to see, finally. That we will always be in need of God's continued nourishment, his nourishing grace to maintain or keep our spiritual sight healthy. You can't let up on it. We'll always need it. I'm not saying to maintain your salvation. I didn't say that. But as his children, we'll still struggle with healthy spiritual sight unless we are fed by God. His word attended by his spirit. That's how we know Christ and it's how our sight stays strong. Verse 44. Here's the first Easter sermon ever given. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and notice what he adds, and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There you have it again. And notice he adds the Psalms. I I wonder to myself, If we had more time, I'd delve into this because this would be amazing itself. Just out of the Psalms, you could show Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But in Psalm 16, maybe this is what he's talking about. Maybe this is what he opened up for them. They are probably up all night. In Psalm 16, 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Why were you all worried? God wasn't going to abandon me in that tomb. But I think rather he he probably quoted Psalm 110 to them. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool which would soon take place as he ascended to the right hand of his father. But once again, see the illumination of God's word by Christ. In verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What made the difference for the disciples, do you think? How did they ever start trusting in the cross and believing in the empty tomb? Verse 45, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Once again, Philip Ryken says, What these men needed, what everyone needs, is the mind-opening work of God. Christianity is rational, but understanding the gospel is not merely intellectual. It takes a work of God for anyone to know Jesus in a saving way. Christ gives us a short but potent conclusion to his Easter sermon, verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name, in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He finished off Clopas' truncated story of the gospel, didn't he? He told them the real gospel, that Jesus suffered and died for our sins, and on the third day he rose again. And we should therefore repent of our sins, believe on Christ, and be forgiven on the basis of Christ's work. And guess what you should do? What you would naturally do if you really believed it, you'll go tell everybody. Why would you not? Verse 48 says just this. You are witnesses of these things. God must grant us spiritual sight so we can embrace the importance of Christ and his resurrection. How could we be effective messengers, though, on our own? Verse 49, I'll close with this verse. And behold, Jesus says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And in the book of Acts, we have the record of the Spirit of God coming, setting up the new ministry of the Spirit, if you will. It's not really new, but it's enhanced. As the Spirit of God indwells every believer. Brothers and sisters, Easter Sunday is a rightful high point for us Christians. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness that he won for us by his death. Also, by his power, we also are already resurrected to new life. Our resurrection began when we were born again, not when we die. Death is just a passage into glory. And Christ's resurrection is an absolute guarantee of our own glorious resurrection. So how do we keep this fire burning? We've seen it in this text. God keeps the fire burning within us by his word and by his sacraments. He promised to attend them, to be with them. We need God's continued nourishing grace to maintain our spiritual sight. And we'll find his nourishing grace in his word and in his sacraments. That's why every Sunday, every Sunday, is Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Lord God, we are overjoyed with the events recorded in your word that have happened in history. Knowing of Christ's resurrection and believing, it is proof enough that you have done a supernatural work in us. We wouldn't believe if you didn't do the work. We wouldn't see if you didn't give us sight. For we could see plainly how you must grant us spiritual sight for us to embrace the importance of Christ and his resurrection. Father, we want the fire to keep burning we want to have courage to be witnesses for the risen Christ with all who we meet. Give us a constant yearning for your word and your sacraments. Give us a constant itch to open the scripture and to talk to you, to read your word, to pray, to fellowship with your, your people. Make us think of joining with the rest of your people for worship as something that we would never want to miss. We need your continued nourishing grace to nurture our spiritual sight. We praise you for the power uh, that you work in and through us, as it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. We pray this in the name of our risen Savior, amen. Let us together turn in our hymnals to prepare for the Lord's Supper by singing verses 1 through 3 of 286. We'll stand as we sing, Worship Christ the Risen King.